Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. It is great to be with you. I am delighted to uh, be here to share God's word with you at Westminster Chapel and contribute to your Journey of a Lifetime series, which is Preaching Through Acts. Um, I will be focusing on uh, Acts 2, but ultimately on just a few verses in Acts chapter 2. And I just want to say that I'm covering material that will be familiar to some of you, uh, perhaps the majority, um, but maybe from a slightly different angle. So listen carefully. But actually, if it is familiar, it's very important you check. I'm clear on this. I understand this because as you'll see, as I go through what I want to say, these things are not like once and for all, really. Like, oh, I did that 25 years ago. Um, They are the way we live, really. They give shape to our lives. So I'd like to say that. It's quite a good opportunity with the um, material this morning to, to have a sort of MOT on your own uh, spiritual walk with God and check all's working and clear. But it's particularly relevant as well if you're not yet a Christian or if you're only recently a a Christian, quite a young Christian, because there may be things you need to to get in order. And certainly from my own background, excuse me, bit of a cold, but I don't think it'll be a big problem. From my own background, uh, I know that it took me quite a while to even get clear on these things that I'm going to be talking about. So I hope you'll all be ears pinned back listening, uh, even though the material is quite basic. That's not apology, it's just to explain. So the title is, Are You Sitting Comfortably? And you'll see the reason for that title in a moment. But let's start off with just a simple picture, really. The foundations of any building are obviously very important. They give uh, strength to the building and security so it doesn't fall down, so it it withstands shocks if there there are even things like earthquakes, but it's certainly in a good building like this one, it, it ensures the building stands secure for ideally centuries, uh, good foundations. They also, foundations, dictate the shape of the building in a rather obvious way. If you have uh, square foundations, you will have a square building. You can't build an oblong sort of shape or a round building on square foundations. Indeed, even in a house, if you want to have an extension, you're going to need new foundations or it's not going to stand up. So we're not going to do that with our Christian lives, but what we are going to do is realise the foundational things we build on shape our whole Christian life. So they're relevant right through till we go to glory. And Christian foundations then are important not only for shape, but for security and safety, like with a building, that we are strong and well settled. Um, And so for this morning, I'm actually going to go back, as we do in Acts 2, to the very beginning of the uh, gospel age, the age we live in, what you could call the new covenant age after Jesus died, rose again and ascended back to heaven. 
Other people sometimes call it the church age and all sorts of phrases are used. But I think a biblical phrase is the last days. And we'll see that briefly as we look at something Peter preached, that this is the, the fulfillment of the climax of the ages, as Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. We're, we're in, after Jesus came, died, rose again, we're in a very new phase at that point in God's dealings with men, a very unique time, and we are privileged, all of us, to live in that time. And uh, it is still operating, the time that started on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Let's just sort of dig in and begin to open our Bibles. It'll be Acts, mostly, that we read from. But I want us to get clear this, last, this first last point I'm making. There was something unique that happened on the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> Even though Jesus was risen from the dead and was able to teach his disciples for 40 days, there was something that hadn't quite happened. If you look at Acts 1, and you've probably preached, uh, someone's preached on this, so it's only a reminder. If you look at Acts 1, verse 3, let's read verse 3 onwards down to about 8. After his suffering, Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them, this is the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Let's notice this one. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he's actually saying this isn't quite the end of the job. This is not quite where we're going to be in a few days' time. <clears throat> then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? A uh, whole separate subject, but clearly the apostles and disciples hadn't quite got what was going to happen at this stage. Despite him being risen from the dead, Jesus teaching them, they sort of were still expecting a, an earthly kingdom to come in, I think, and the Messiah to set it up. Uh, so, Obviously, their brains were picking up what Jesus said, but there was something going to happen inside, which we know did happen, that would change their perspective. Anyway, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Again, he's emphasizing something's still going to happen, and that's going to change what you do and how you do it. And if we just look at verse 11 while we're in chapter 1, <clears throat> then we get to the ascension. And he ascends back to be with the Father. And the angels that are standing nearby, at first I think unnoticed perhaps by the disciples, they call their attention because they're standing, the disciples are standing around staring into heaven a bit open-mouthed, wondering what's happening and what's going to happen. And they make this, the angels make this very simple statement. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I always feel this is one of the clearest summaries of, of what's going to happen and the age we're in. Basically, there are two bookends to it. One is Jesus going back to the Father, and the, the other end is his return, which I expect, a personal return of Jesus, coming back, no longer as Saviour and Lord, but as our judge. 
and as our saviour, those of us who know him, and opening up a new heavens and a new earth, establishing his kingdom in that wonderful way that is almost beyond our imagination. But that hasn't happened yet. Jesus went back to heaven. These angels say, he'll come back in a similar way, but almost, using my words, now you've got something you've got to get on with. Now, if we put all that together, they were waiting short term for something special to happen, Jesus told them. And then the angels gave them a slightly longer term perspective. You will then be going throughout the whole world with this, mission, this gospel mission, this gospel message. And then the end will come when Jesus comes back. So now let's move to chapter two, because you've probably again read this, but let's remind ourselves the first four verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, what Jesus had predicted actually happens, experientially happens for the disciples, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. Overwhelmed by the Spirit, with great joy and with fresh gifting, which is manifest in one case in the, here in the gift of languages, to proclaim the glory of God in multiple languages, they, they spill out onto the street. Their whole demeanour is such that people mock them and say they're drunk, at nine o'clock in the morning, early morning, they shouldn't be drunk. So they're clearly full of joy. They don't know quite what to do with themselves. And they're speaking about the wonderful things that have happened when Jesus died and rose again, the gospel. Eventually, they get enough sort of uh, poise back to, to gather the crowd and to preach. And that's where we pick up with Peter preaching. And when Peter starts, let's just read two verses this is Acts 2, verses 17 and 18. This is what he starts with. Peter, preaching to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. In the last days, notice that phrase, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So this is a wonderful proclamation. Basically, a whole new era has started. An era that is not just for Jews, and it would be largely Jews in front of him, Jews from different parts of the world, it might be said, but, but actually for all people. It's for all who God will call, as he, he says in verse 21. And then some of them are a long way away from you today. They were a long way away in distance, but actually in years. We're amongst this people thousands, a couple of thousand years later. But he said, in this last days phase, and let's just bear in mind, last days means last days. English doesn't have laster, lastest of last days. They're last days. They're last days. They're last days. And this is a phase that will end, it's not, it's, will end with the return of Jesus and will end with the establishments of new heaven and new earth. And wonderful, we'll be changed, we'll see him face to face. It's a glorious prospect. Not my main subject for this morning, but we are still in what started on that day. Now, there may be various, of course there are, uh, human recognition of phases and interesting things we can see from church history. But in the grand scheme of things, 
What began on the day of Pentecost is still going on. And we are still caught up in that. We are still to go throughout the nations to all peoples and tribes and tongues with the good news that Jesus can be your saviour and Lord. There is hope in Jesus Christ. You, too, can be saved. And Jesus' effective saviourhood, his, his sa- him as saviour, that is still operating. One day he'll come back as judge. It'll be too late then. But at the moment, thank God, the day of grace, the age of grace, whatever phrases we want to use for this, is still going on, the gospel age. And that's where it starts on the day of Pentecost, and it's still ongoing. Now, when a thing starts, it's often quite important to see foundations, to see what the shape of this thing is. And we can do that, and that's where we're going to focus for the rest of this morning, by looking at a couple of verses here in Acts 2. So in this era, the one we're in, sort of what's the message? Where, what's the foundational message? Well, we, we've got a very clear idea. If you go to verse 37, we'll just read a few verses, part of Peter's preach. But I want to pick it up, 37. Notice this. Peter has proclaimed Jesus. He's proclaimed that the crowd listening to him have our sinners, in the broad sense, they have paid a part in the crucifixion of the Son of God. He's challenged them pretty vigorously. And he's also proclaimed the resurrection. And he's proclaimed that this Jesus is alive. And this Jesus, you know, risen from the dead, he's victorious. He's Lord. When the people heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Let's just pause for a minute. In this era, the one we live in, and it's happened to most of us in this room, I would suggest, maybe some, it will happen this morning, there often comes a point, there has come a point for many of us, where we get this is true. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus did die on the cross for me. Jesus is alive. What do I do? Cut to the heart, right? There's a a gut action. There's emotion. It's not merely intellectual. Cut to the heart. What do we do then? This is is where we pray and work to get people to, in whatever way, from whatever background and nation, get to the point where they say, "Well, well, what do we do then? Well, Peter tells them. Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Just notice that because we're those far off. Far off in time, far off in geography, actually. You, the promise is for you, your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. All who get, get it. It's a mysterious balance between God's sovereignty, which I clearly strongly believe in, and human responsibility in responding. But we're not going to explore the intellectual philosophical angle this morning. We're just going to accept the reality that there is a, a move where the Holy Spirit quickens something in you who were dead in your sins. And you hear something. 
You hear the call, and your response is something like this group. I get that. I see it. What do I do? Then what Paul, Peter says is relevant. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is for everyone, near and far, throughout this era, everyone. And it does say, let's read the next couple of verses, because it's worth noticing. With many other words, he warned them. So we've only got a summary, okay? Peter did say a lot of other things, not separate subjects, I suggest, but unpacking perhaps some things. And he pleaded with them. So some of it was emotional. Yes, I want you to respond. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That's our plea. That's the plea of the gospel. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message, we're back with that, those who heard and responded to what he said were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wonderful, wonderful, exciting day. Now, when he was asked that question, he'd been Peter, when he was asked that question, what should we do? He gave an answer which is a composite answer, but it has separate elements to it. We've just read it. Let's remind ourselves because it's so foundational to what I want to say this morning. He replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I would call that <clears throat> the whole deal or the Peter's package, the Peter package. But it isn't actually something you can easily divide up, but it has got four elements to it. And that's what I want to focus on and you to hear this morning. Repentance from sin and your old way of life, vital element, that you turn from the old way of living, you realize your need. If you get to the point of saying, what do we do? That's probably happening, but it's worth noting. It is understanding I need God more than he needs me. If you ever have a fundamental attitude that, well, actually, I'll try this and give it a try. Hmm, God's got a good deal when he got me. You haven't yet understood repentance. Okay? Just to be not unkind to you, but to challenge you because we're testing these things. So repentance is that I understand I need the grace of God. I am without hope and without God. God help me. That's repentance. And please forgive me. Now, I think the next one we can genuinely say, faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's quite closely wrapped up with baptism here, which will be interesting to talk about in a moment. But so there's repentance, there's faith in Jesus as the answer to my need and my sin. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry about that. Mind you, it's not unknown for me to get a bit carried away. Faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Very important. Then, closely associated with that here, water baptism as a demonstration of your faith and of the fact that you now have a new life where Jesus is your Lord, and receiving the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a composite package. I'll keep using that word. And it is very unwise to do what I'm about to do. I'm going to do something unwise. 
which is to try and over-break it up and analyse it. But you have to do that sometimes. When I was at school many years ago, I doubt if they allow them to do this now, but in biology lessons, we sometimes had to dissect little animals like a frog. Now, I'm sure, I hope this doesn't make you offend you because it's probably not done today. But in order to understand how it worked and all its inner workings, but sadly, you had to kill the frog to do it. And then you opened it up and looked at it. So in a way, you spoilt the frog by trying to overanalyze it. Now, I don't want to spoil this by overanalyzing, but I've got to do it a bit to understand it. Do you see the analogy? In a way, I want to give you a very clear warning that you cannot overdo the analysis without spoiling it completely. But there are four distinct elements to Christian foundations. There are four distinct elements to a secure, strong Christian life. Now, I like to use the illustration of a chair. In an ideal world, it's getting harder and harder to find these today, it would be an old-fashioned wooden chair with four separate legs fitted separately. Maybe you can get an Ikea chair or something like that today, but they're quite hard to see. So it, really forget the idea of a, a metal frame, but at least you've got four legs. Now, if you have a chair for a purpose, most of us do, we sit on it, sit on it for our dinner, we sit on it at our desk, uh, work on our computer, do other things. You basically want a secure chair. You do not continue all your life analyzing, admiring the chair. Well, something a bit odd if you do, but you do want it as a good, solid, reliable chair. You don't want a couple of loose legs that wobble every time you sit on it. You certainly don't want only three legs, so you always have to slightly balance yourself to keep straight. A chair needs to have four well-fixed legs. And actually, I'm sure Ikea would disagree with what I'm about to say, but actually it doesn't matter in what order you fit the legs particularly, as long as they're all fitted securely. In other words, forgetting Ikea for a moment, in other words, there is not something precious about, well, you know, is it one, two, three, four? Is it one, two, three, four? Overanalyzing that, are they all in place? Are they all strong and secure as this chair is? Therefore, for all the things I want to do from this chair, do I not have to worry about constantly wobbling or maybe even almost falling over and constantly being distracted with the state of my chair? I hope you're with me on the analogy. Because in a way, that's what we're looking at here. What is it in our era, in every nation, in every culture, that fundamentally makes you a follower of Jesus and is important for your strength, security, and effectiveness as a Christian? I would argue that you clearly understand what it is to repent, that you have turned from your old way of life and realised you needed to, that you clearly, personally, have put faith in Jesus Christ as your Saviour and Lord and in him alone as the answer to your need, that you have been baptised to publicly demonstrate to men and angels, but actually to demons as well, and actually even to your own spirit, 
that this is an important decision. You followed Jesus, you died with him, you rose with him, and your life is now hidden with him, and he's your Lord. And that you understand the importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit, and that you needed that gift of the Spirit much more than it's much, he is much more than just the work internally that brought you to salvation. This is an empowering for service. It's what Jesus talked about to the disciples in Acts 1. Wait until you're empowered from on high. Wait till you've received this promise. This is not purely about, can I get my new, going to heaven? This is about living now. This is about the power to witness. This is about the power to serve indeed to walk in the spirit and begin to see victory over sin to some degree, not total, I quickly say, but walking in the spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, seeing the fruit of the spirit, but also receiving gifts to enable you to do the job that God calls you to do. So the four elements to a healthy Christian life, repentance, faith, water baptism, and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they shape your whole Christian life. They give security to it. They are relevant to it. Now, you don't keep going through, for example, water baptism, an obvious example, but the, the truth in it is vital that you live understanding. You died to, in Christ to this world and to sin. You now live for him. You live in the power of a new life, and you live as, a, as someone who Jesus is your Lord under his authority and so on and so forth with all of them. Now, actually, and I speak very personally here, sometimes Christians take quite a while to get all these four firmly fixed in place. I did. I would say as a modest estimate, it took me eight or nine years to get all four legs properly fixed on my chair. And if you're wondering, oh, what are you saying about going to heaven? I'm going to deal with that as well how you get to heaven, what the heaven bit is, the, the, the new life. I do understand there's a difference, but you don't have to be water baptised to be a Christian. I do get that. I'm talking about an active Christian life, secure and strong. Now, back to me. It probably took eight or nine years. I think I clearly, as a young teenager, put... I mean, I'm really odd, so I'm going to really mess the order up here because I probably started by putting faith in Jesus, because I heard so many messages about it, because I was brought up in an evangelical Christian church, and I'm grateful to God for it. So I sort of asked Jesus into my life a number of times through the teenage. In fact, every time I felt a bit of a mess, I came back and asked him into my life. So it probably was in the scores, if not more, over the first few teenage years of my life that asked Jesus, but I really meant it. I did. I wasn't in so much doubt as like doubt about myself. But then when I was in my late teens, God really showed me something which seemed so obvious, you could say. I was one of my down periods about myself. I felt the Holy Spirit, I would now say, I didn't want to use that word then, I felt God said to me, why are you so surprised that you're so feeble? If you were able to do this, I wouldn't have had to die for you. If you were able to sort it out yourself, I would not have needed to die for you. Do you not realise that you are a proud, sin, 
riddled, foolish young man, and without my death, this is Jesus speaking, if you like, metaphorically to me, you would not have hope. And honestly, that was like a, a light bulb moment. Oh, right, all this stuff, I, of course I'm a mess. Of course I'm useless. Of course I keep sinning. Of course I keep being proud and compromising because I'm a total sinner. In my flesh, no good thing dwells. So I need to understand, I have to see it's all muck. Like Paul said, it's all rubbish that I might gain Christ. So I think I got my repentance fixed about three years later. Now, that is probably not ideal. I'm not even sure it's possible. So please bear that in mind. But I am just making a point. I had to get clear this is real. This is real. You did need to repent. You were without hope and without God, without Jesus. There's no hope. You are nothing. You are useless. I'm going to let, you, let it give you it because it's true what God said to me. You're useless without me. What on earth do you expect? Amen? So in a sense, it possibly took me three or four years to get repentance and faith clear. Now, in the middle of that, I was water baptised. So as probably a 14-year-old will say, for sake of argument, I can't remember the exact date, uh, because of the church I was brought up in, and because I had put faith and come forward in meeting, they, they, you know, I got baptised. And I meant it. I meant it. Well, then for me, a few years later when I was at university, I had a real uh, crisis again. I was in, a, a, I'm very old. So I was at university in the late 60s and early 70s. And there was a lot of very, uh, sin, I won't go into detail, a lot of very sinful activity all around me. And I was in turmoil and felt a useless Christian. At the same time, a, 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 an Anglican uh, minister called David Watson who's long since gone to glory, who was minister, uh, Reverend Watson from York, came and did a mission at our university. And he was brilliant. And we saw 200 students respond. But he also, and his team, left behind the teaching about the Holy Spirit and the need for the Holy Spirit and that the gifts of the Spirit were for today. They hadn't ceased. And I tussled with that because I'd been brought up to say that's all wrong. That's either flesh or the devil. And so I went through an agonizing year where the most powerful gospel preaching I'd ever seen with the most fruit was from a man who believed that the Holy Spirit gave you gifts today and you all needed to receive it. So there was a sort of disconnect in my brain, as you might imagine. And in the end, without boring you with the details, God got me to a point where I asked people who I'd been criticizing and mocking to pray for me to be filled with the Spirit, and nothing happened. Nothing happened again, nothing happened again. So I went back to ground zero and thought, am I even a Christian? I don't know if any of you have experienced this sort of thing, but I felt Jesus really blessed me. So I got into my room on my own. This is months after I'd first started to be prayed for. And I felt God said to me, forget all this fuss about tongues and the gifts of the Spirit. Sort yourself out with me. And I began to read through the New Testament more hungrily than probably ever before, although I've been a Christian about 10 years by now. And in that time, 
the Holy Spirit ministered to me out of New Testament. And I will quickly tell you the answer, the finish of the story. I hope God bears with me because I, I, I think it's important to talk personally. I want to be quick. I was on my own in my room and I was reading the, the, the account of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is in agony as he faces the cross. And it, this is the only way I can describe it. It struck me suddenly, and you could say you must be slow, but that's the truth. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. It was anathema to him. He hated the idea. But because he loved me, he did it. That's ABC, really, isn't it? But I tell you the difference. After 10, 15 years of hearing the gospel, I had never felt emotional about Jesus dying for me. I never felt like weeping. But at that moment, I completely broke down in tears on my own. I realized Jesus loved me. Jesus actually went to the cross because he cared about, he died, he went through something he hated, his whole soul revolted against, out of his compassion and love. Now, in the middle of that experience, which was an emotional one, but it was a very healthy one, I would argue, I felt a prompt, is the way I describe it, no more dramatic than that. It was like a, a, a thought, I'll be really sensible and straightforward. I think it was God, of course, but I felt it was like a thought. Now would be a good time to pray in tongues. I was saying thank you, I was weeping, and I was saying thank you, and that was the only word I was saying. And I'd said it for about five or ten minutes. Thank you, thank you. And it felt like I needed to say more. And so I just started speaking in tongues. Now, I'm not saying you've got to do that. I'm just telling you my story. Something happened. And for me, it was so important. I was on my own. I hadn't had a big emotional push from anybody. Nobody else was there. I was centred on Jesus, which was very important because I was slightly suspicious. Is this going to be the devil or God? Well, actually, it was very clearly I was worshipping Jesus for dying on the cross for me. I think that's not the devil's territory. And I, I just knew that all I was doing was pouring out my heart to the Lord. I just knew that. And it also felt like, well, you know, the flesh question seems so ridiculous. I mean, if you, some of you are parents, if you have a small child comes to you, uh, two, three, two, three-year-old or something, and they bring you a little scribbled picture, and they say, this is a picture of you, Daddy. You don't go, cool, that's rubbish. Don't bring a picture of me till you can draw properly. You accept their heart thing, right? Okay, so I, I, I think it helped my brain. Maybe you're not like this, but it's like, does it matter? What is it, flesh and spirit? I just love you, Jesus. So it doesn't really matter at one level. Right there, that was important for me. Now, the rest of the story is lengthy, and it won't, I won't go into it. I obviously went back, apologised to all the people I criticised and all the rest of it. I ate a lot of humble pie, and I suppose broadly the rest is history. It affected my... But my fourth leg was finally clearly in place. <laughs> Now, that had taken me about nine years. Now, I'm not saying that any one person's experience, mine, is duplicated in other people's. It's not. These are highly sort of personal things. But I am saying that as you read through the New Testament, I think you read through the book of Acts that you're reading through. 
I think you can see, Acts particularly, that's where I want to stay, you can see that the apostles always sort of check that people have got all this in place. You say, really? Well, I haven't time to do it. You'll have to do your own Bible study. But I will give you the heads up. If you look at Acts 8, they go to Samaria. Sorry, let's, before they go, the apostles go, that's later. Uh, Philip, isn't it? He preaches the gospel. The people repent and put faith in Jesus and are water baptised. And, verse 8 tells us, there is great joy in the city. So they repent, they put faith in Jesus, they're water baptised, and there's a change in their demeanour. There's joy in the city. By verses 15 and 18, you've got uh, Peter and John, you've got the apostles going down there, and what happens, I wish I had time to look at it, I'm not going to, is that they realised they had not yet received the Spirit. Well, on what basis did they realise that? I mean, you've got these people water baptised, they're all happy, well, they hadn't had some experience comparable, presumably, to their own Pentecostal experience. And so we hear that they then prayed for them and they received the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, just a formality. I don't think so. There was an ex-magician there called Simon the Sorcerer who, when he saw what happened, listen, people had already repented, put faith and been water baptised. When he saw what happened, he offered money to be able to do that. Now, I don't think that was an inconsequential thing. These were people who'd repent. He said, can I do what you're doing? Lay hands and that happens. Now, it doesn't tell us what happened, but it was something. Simon wanted to buy it. And of course, Peter was very angry with him for thinking like that. Go to Acts 10, Cornelius. Now, I think you could argue Cornelius has already repented. He's a God-fearer. He's seeking God. He wants to know how to get right with God. So Peter goes there, inspired and provoked by the Holy Spirit uh, and, and God's vision to him, and he preaches about Jesus. Now, it's so interesting. It's exactly what I said. You can't get over-analytical. But if you read it carefully, it's as he's preaching about Jesus, the Holy Spirit falls on them. <laughs> right. So basically, God needed... All of this is personal, but it's also part of God's sovereign plan, isn't it? God had to do something to really get Peter to get this was the same stuff he'd got, even though these were Gentiles and Roman centurion. So what actually happens is that they're repentant, I would say. They want God. They want help. They, what should we do if they've already got there? So he preaches, Jesus, oh, Jesus is the answer to our need. Woof! And they're filled with the Spirit. Peter goes, oh, crumbs, it's happened to them like it did to us. Does he say, fine, job done? No, he baptises them in water. Read it for yourself. He, he makes sure they've got the fourth leg or he, he seals the faith with it, whatever you like to call it. Let's look at one other, Acts 19. And this is fascinating because this is like watching an apostle at work, a first century apostle, putting people's foundations in place. It's like a little documentary, fly on the wall. Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples who asked them, uh, sorry, there he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you 
received. John's baptism, they applied. Ah, Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Just think this through for a minute. Just think. Don't get too encrusted, like we all are, with preconceived ideas. Just, just think what we've just read. And I believe it's a truthful account of what happened. So Paul turns up. He knows that something's gone on. I think it's a policy. Paul turns up to what he thinks are disciples, in inverted commas. Well, they're not disciples of Jesus yet. And he asks them the question... Did you, because he realises something's not right, clearly. He realises these guys aren't very straight. Well, perhaps it was just his natural approach. Who knows? He's checking their foundations. So he asked, How, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, for many Christians historically, that's a silly question. Well, of course, we, that's, when, that's what it is when you become a Christian. No, I think we're talking about something which is not your new birth. We're talking about coming upon, receiving, anointing, empowering. There's all sorts of different phrases, baptism, filling, for service to live the Christian life. He realises these people lack something. And he starts with what he assumes is the most obvious lack. Think it through. Holy Spirit, because that's what happened in other places like Samaria, wasn't it? So he says, well, have you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Have you got that leg? Did you receive that gift clearly and consciously? Because I believe those four legs, you're all able to answer the question. Have you repented? Have you put faith in Jesus? Are you baptised? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? You should be able to know whether you can answer yes or no. And I don't mean that should, like you're naughty if you don't. I mean it to build your faith and encourage you. They're questions you can answer. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, well, we haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't say, oh, fine, I'll pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, no. He's now going to analyse the rest of it. Okay, what happened with your baptism? Because he'd assume that the baptism's to do with Jesus and faith in Jesus. And they, he realises they, they're actually disciples of John. They've only repented. John's was a repentance with a hope that hadn't come yet, which was that the Lamb of God would take away their sins, Jesus. That's all John had. That was his message. Well, they'd heard that. They wanted an answer. They'd repented, but they hadn't got anything else. So he explains Jesus. Jesus has come. Jesus died. Obviously, we haven't got all the words of what he said, but he told them about Jesus. Now, on hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Mm, that's interesting. Baptised a second time. Ooh, slightly controversial. I'll just briefly put my toe in the water. I would argue that the New Testament recognises mostly, I would argue, believer's baptism. That you're baptised and an act of faith in what Jesus has done for you and a public and full way of saying, I'm a follower of Jesus and he's my Lord. It's interesting that these people had been baptised with a promise of something still to come. I'll let you draw your own parallels. With a promise of something still to come, but they hadn't yet personally put faith in Jesus. They hadn't heard and understood about Jesus. When they heard and understood about Jesus, they were water baptised in faith 
in Jesus, as believers in Jesus, and in their commitment to him as their Lord. And he makes sure they are baptised. He doesn't think John's is enough, you could argue. Then, he's not feeling he's done then. Well, that's it. No, there's another leg to go, isn't there, for their chair. So Paul placed his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them, spoke in tongues and prophesied. It's not essential, the actual manifestation. I really don't believe that you have to do that, speak in tongues. But something pretty dramatic happened, and they could now answer his question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit and you believe? They could say, yes. I believe this is apostolic work throughout the last days, throughout the gospel age, throughout these, the era we're in. That if you're going to be an effective Christian, you need to be consciously aware of these four elements as part of your foundational truth. Now, this is where the question might come up. Are you saying, John, that I've got to be water baptised and consciously, knowingly filled with the Spirit to be a Christian and go to heaven? No, I'm not. I'm not, and I'll explain why. I understand that repentance and faith is the rock-solid foundation of your salvation. I do understand that. But the New Testament doesn't ask questions like, what do I need to get to heaven? That's not a New Testament question. That's a modern, funny question. We get so, what do I need to have a ticket to heaven? So that when I get to the, that, the New Testament doesn't even think like that. That's just not New Testament. There is a New Testament example that the way to be secure to go to heaven is to put faith, to, to acknowledge your sin and put faith in Jesus as your saviour. And that is writ large with the thief on the cross who died alongside Jesus. And you can read all about it in Luke 23, which we obviously haven't time to. But in Luke 23, there's two criminals crucified with Jesus, one on the left and one on the right. And one of them mocks Jesus and is angry and bitter. And the other one, after a short period, it seems, sees something. He understands that although all he's physically seeing is another man naked and bleeding, dying on a cross like him. That's all he physically sees. Remember that. But he sees that this man is different. He is who he says he is. He's the king of the Jews. He's, it, what, what Pilate's mockingly written is true. This man sees it. And he says, and if you read his words, it's powerful, we, he's talking to the other criminal, we are justly punished for our sins, crimes. Now, whether you consider that's a rather extreme punishment for thieving, that's another matter. He's acknowledging that he is a broken sinner. That's repentance. And then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's faith in Jesus. So this dear poor man dying at the end of a life of crime without a chance to go to church, without a chance to read the Bible, without a chance to be water baptised, without a chance to give any tithes, this man realises his need and puts his faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now that is a huge grace marker, a grace marker at the beginning of the gospel age, the church age. And it is amazing 
that this man is saved without able to do one good work. I mean, he's just coughing out his last in agony for a few more hours. That's all that happened to him. There's an amazing challenge in that. It's a wonderful gospel to look at it. Dear old Bishop Ryle, 19th century bishop, said, one thief was saved so that no one need despair, but only one, only one, so that no one would be complacent. Because the danger, you look at that and you think, oh, that's good, I can, I can just wait to the end of my life and then I'll, 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 I'll put faith in Jesus, like an insurance policy at the end, I'll be, I'll be okay. I had a friend at university who said that when all the stuff was kicking off. He said, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to become a Christian. We had a lot of debate and discussion with it. He said, and he mocked it. He said, I'll, I'll swat, my, swat for my finals at the end of my life. That's the phrase I remember him using, although it's 50 years ago. I'll swat for my finals at the end of my life. I don't know what happened to him. See, you might not be like that thief. You might be like the other one. Bitter, angry, don't see why it's happened to you. Don't guarantee you're like the good thief or the thief that gets saved. They're both bad. Also, there is no sense in the Bible, as I've said already, New Testament, that this is about a ticket to heaven. This is large, yes, it's great to go to heaven and be with Jesus, new heavens and new earth, but this is about living now. So living now as a follower of Jesus, with Jesus as your Lord, you do need the four legs. I mean, it's not like, oh, the thief on the cross, so we can all be like that. In a way, he's pretty exceptional in other ways, apart from him, poor man's dying. In other ways, he is pre-resurrection of Jesus and he's pre-Pentecost. Now, I don't want to get into theological conundrums, but he's, he's very early on, shall we say, <laughs> in the work of the gospel age. So he's not the norm. The norm is what we're looking at in Acts. The norm is that you clearly understand that you've repented and put faith in Jesus and that you have water baptised to show that you have started a new life, you're dead to the old life, that you're following Jesus and that he's your Lord and that you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower you to live, to empower you to walk as you want to walk, to, you go on being filled. Remember, it's the shape of your life. You go on, it's not once and for all. You go on being filled with the Spirit. You keep drinking, you keep walking because that's the only way to be a strong, effective Christian. Not just the Holy Spirit, but understanding what baptism means and living in the light of it. Understanding that you repented and living in the light of it. So you're not going to go back to your old ways of life. Understanding that everything is dependent on what Jesus did for you. So for your whole life, that is how you live. And if you can get it, it will make your Christian life, not easier, not promising that, but a lot more effective and fruitful and secure in a sense of assurance and that even Satan's attacks won't rock you so much. You'll be like on a strong, solid chair. And life will provide storms, but you'll be much more secure and solid and strong. And really, as I keep saying, the New Testament is interested in you living this life, not have you got a ticket to heaven. You're going to be with Jesus. I'm going to be with you because I know him now. You know, it's, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord, but the Lord you already know. That's not the big issue. 
The issue is I want to live for him now. Whether I live or die, I want to live for the Lord, don't you? I want to do the best I can for him. I want to be a spirit-filled person at my workplace. I want to understand that I march to a different tune to the world around because I've repented from all that and I follow this. Not arrogant, just I understand that's my value system. I understand that everything depends on Jesus. My whole life is soaked in his grace. I'd be nothing but for him. Thank you, Jesus. You've forgiven me. I keep coming. When I fail, I say, Lord, I confess my sins, knowing you're faithful and just to forgive me my sins because you've already died and done it. I just want you to apply it. Wash me clean again, Lord. Give me strength. Holy Spirit, help me to walk with after you. Help me not to be fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Help me to be fruitful and show love and, and kindness and patience. It's all wrapped together. It's the chair. <laughs> you do everything sitting on it. And I, therefore, as I finish, I am finishing. I have no idea at all the time you're supposed to finish, but I am finishing now. I'm probably late, but never mind. I feel it's been very important. I want to say as we close, this is a personal thing for you. I'm not going to get people forward or anything like that. But I do think it's a time to check the legs on your chair. Have you really got repentance? Are you like funny old John Groves? who for three or four years didn't really understand he really did need saving. And really, everything else is rubbish. And his life is useless without Jesus. Probably most of you got there, but some may not. Tighten that leg up and set it in place. Have you understood that everything depends on Jesus? Your faith in Jesus Christ is the foundation of everything. Without him, you are nothing. You can be, gloriously will be, forgiven all your sins and you continue to be washed clean as you stand on that ground. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You can say, Lord, keep me clean. Lord, I know. If I, I mean, to be honest with you, the grace of God is wonderful. Just think of that thief on the cross for that one. No chance to do a good thing at all. And yet he goes to be with Jesus. You're not going to get saved because your performance is his performance. But just stand secure in that. And then, are you water baptised as a believer? Have you said, I am a follower of Jesus. I want people to know. I want angels to know. I want demons to know. And I want to say, Jesus is my Lord. And Jesus is my saviour. And are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Don't get over anxious about terminology even in acts it's very different terminology coming upon receiving gift of but i think it's an empowering it's not quite the same it's just well I, you know of course i am i'm a christian well they seem to be able to know a bit more about it and i think maybe you need to seek things on your own like i did or maybe get someone to pray for you and talk it out if you want to be water baptized i think you can go to the welcome desk is that right? Uh, that late, kind lady over there, whose name I've forgotten, sorry. You know, if you would like to be baptised, talk to her. Uh, but I'm going to pray for you and we're going to stop and then Guy's going to go on. So let's, let's just pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, I thank you for this glorious gospel. I thank you, Jesus, that you have done so much for us. I thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. I thank you, Lord, that you've, you've saved me. You've saved me from my sin, but you've saved me from myself. And you've saved me from Satan's devices. 
I thank you that I've had new life in you, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that I died with you and I rose with you. I do want to follow you every day of my life, Lord. Help me. And I thank you for the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you that I, you're a promised gift. You're not something I've earned. I don't deserve it. It's not two-tier Christianity. This is all part of the foundational package that you've given us, that we have the power to live this new life. We have the anointing to live differently to how we used to live. And you call us, Lord, to walk in the knowledge of that, to consciously go on being filled with the Spirit, to not walk in the, after the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit. And Lord, to expect you to speak to us, to change us, to use us, to gift us, to equip us to be effective in this day and generation. Lord, thank you that there's still opportunity today Lord Jesus, we'd love to see you come back soon, but we know you haven't come yet. And we know, Lord, that this message still applies to everybody, us in here, but all those around us in this vast city. Help us, Lord, to be part of your mission of mercy. And Lord, we need everything you've given us, all the equipping you've given us to do it. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.